0: Hi there and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein.
1: And I'm ABC's Deputy Political Director Mary Alice Parks.
0: I'm coming to you today from Durham, North Carolina. We're spending some some quality time with our affiliate here in the Raleigh-Durham area. And uh, we we have some churn in the presidential race, Mary Alice. People have been asking for a long time when we're going to see people start dropping out. We got our first drop this week, Congressman Eric Swalwell, uh, coming off a debate performance and some lagging fundraising numbers is, uh, is now out of the race. But um, sure enough, there's another candidate in it already, Tom Steyer, the, the billionaire who is well known on televisions across America for his impeachment push. So uh, we add one, we lose one, one in, one out. And, uh, and it's, it's, uh, we're already starting to see a, a little bit of change, a little bit of churn in a race.
1: Yeah, Eric Spawa made headlines at that first debate for saying that Joe Biden should pass the torch to younger members of the Democratic Party. But it's his campaign that's flamed out. And he did say pretty bluntly to his supporters when he ended his campaign that he just wasn't getting the levels of support and fundraising in the polls. And there's just going to be more and more scrutiny over both the fundraising numbers and all of these candidates' positions in the polls as they have to qualify for the next round of debates. So we might see even more candidates that are floating right around that zero one percent area. feel like there's just too much pressure to justify staying in.
0: And to that point, we're going to speak in a little while to Governor Steve Bullock, who says he has enough qualifying polls to make this round. He was shut out last time, but he seems well-positioned to replace Eric Swalwell as uh, as the 20th uh, member of the debate field uh, in late July with that CNN debate. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the next debate looming, the ABC debate in September, uh, is going to be in Houston, Texas, uh, which Democrats hope will be a battleground state this year. Uh, but it's going to be hard for Tom Steyer to qualify. He's almost certainly not going to be in the July debate uh, that the campaign Despite the fact that uh, that he's going to spend very heavily, it's not he's not going to get the polling that he needs, Mary Alice, that quickly. He, though, is an intriguing addition to this field, in part because he's a self-funder, and in part because he's someone that already has uh, something of a of an email list, given his impeachment push.
1: Yeah, quite a lot of email lists. He brings his own wealth, and that'll be interesting. Like you said, a self-funder, he can spend millions overnight on television ads in a way that some of these other campaigns can't. But he also does a lot of fundraising himself. He's fundraised around climate change, around an impeachment push, around some get-out-the-vote sort of democracy reform initiatives. So like you said, he has a lot of email lists, kind of a big following that he brings almost immediately. Um, It'll be interesting to see if those people stick with him and give him money, because we know that one of the ways to qualify for debates down the road is by showing that you have a lot of individual individuals willing to give you even just a dollar
0: and it's interesting he's an intriguing addition to the field as well because Um, He's got a business background, but he doesn't come at it from what you might consider the business perspective. He's not a raging moderate. He's certainly not Howard Schultz. He's not even Michael Bloomberg when you talk about an entry into the field like this. He's going to push the party uh, from the leftward flank on this issue of impeachment and also on the issue of money and politics. Take a listen to something from his campaign video uh, announcing his candidacy.
2: I think what people believe is that the system has left them. I think people believe that the corporations have bought the democracy, that the politicians don't care about or respect them, don't put them first, are not working for them, but are actually working for the people who have rigged the system. Really what we're doing is trying to make democracy work by pushing power down to the people.
0: So it struck me that uh, that's a script that Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders could have written, but the prescription is almost entirely different. I mean, you've got a guy who says the answer here is self-funding because I'm not owned by anybody. Uh, He's already gotten some pretty harsh pushback from Sanders and Warren, among others, to say the problem is too many billionaires in politics, not too few.
1: And he says that money in politics is the reason that the country hasn't tackled health care in the right way or climate change in a real way, Um, saying that he would do it because he's not bought and paid for. Uh, Like you said, that sounds very similar to Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. But it's I mean, it's a totally different pitch and yet the same pitch. And I'm not sure how voters are going to make sense of that.
0: Yeah, and and he could easily become a target on that stage as well as, uh, if he makes the stage, as well as uh, the guy that's that's slinging some new arrows, Um, having that self-funder, having that that perspective. uh, And he's going to, I think, push the party to be tougher on President Trump. He has taken a clear position on the, an issue that a bunch of the Democrats have not wanted to, this issue of impeaching the president. He was on record on this you know, well more than a year ago, that this was the right way to proceed. He's doubled down on that view in the wake of the Mueller report. We've seen in our polling, Mary Alice, just in our ABC News Washington Post poll in the last couple of days, that uh, support for impeachment proceedings has actually declined. The public does not seem to be there, uh, even if the Democratic base is there. And now that Tom Steyer is in the race, uh, more candidates will be there.
1: Yeah, but the Democratic base is what they're all contending with first. It's a buzzy topic, especially among activists. And activists are the ones that get out and knock on doors and get people to caucus and get people to vote in primaries.
0: Another headline this week, uh, the the administration, uh, the Trump administration in court to try to get Obamacare tossed out. They've won a lower court ruling on this. Uh, They were arguing before a, a federal judge in New Orleans to try to Ah, uh, get that sustained. Uh, and this is an interesting one, Mary Alice, because Republicans have wanted to repeal Obamacare since basically the day it passed, maybe even before that. They've been talking about the importance of of getting rid of it. But they don't have a plan to replace. He told the president told George Stephanopoulos uh, last month that um, he'd have a plan it'd be a phenomenal plan to be out there shortly. But there's no signs of this plan. And this could be a, a real case of, Careful what you wish for politically if, uh, if they actually succeed in getting Obamacare, pre-existing conditions and lifetime caps and all thrown out. You see
1: a lot of that nervousness playing out on Capitol Hill right now. Republicans who made a point of zeroing out the fee uh, so that if you didn't have insurance, you could not be charged a penalty. They zeroed that part of the law out in their tax reform. And that is what allowed these states to bring the whole bill back in front of the courts. So in some ways, they put all of this litigation in motion, but now they're kind of scrambling because if a judge sides with the Republican governors and sides with the administration and scraps the law from the books, it would have huge effects, I mean, millions, it's hard to even imagine. I mean, this is a law that's been on the books for 10 years. It doesn't matter where you get in your insurance, whether it's um, you buy it yourself or you get it from your employer. The law has touched every bit of the healthcare market. So it would just have huge implications overnight for millions of people. And so Republicans are are kind of in a tough spot if all of a sudden they need to come up with a replacement, if this could really be a possibility.
0: Yeah, we'd put them on real defense on this. And we've seen the Democrats... um, Uh, debating amongst themselves the 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 way to uh to patch holes in obamacare build upon it or even throw it out with the medicare for all system Mm -hmm. we're going to talk to uh governor bullock of montana about this topic and more in a a few minutes but it is a reminder that um the the president um can can reorder things uh very quickly uh just by by uh, his administration moving on things or by him speaking on things but not always get the consequences the political consequences that uh that political experts or even Republican strategists may think are the right ones. This is really not ground that many Republicans want to be fighting in the run-up to 2020.
1: No, that's a good way of putting it.
0: I want to talk about this, um, this, uh, this broadening uh, political uh, as well as uh, legal issues that are Ah, uh, surrounding the Jeffrey Epstein case, because this is no ordinary individual. This is a man who had political connections um, all through um, the the u s. government of a, a, a friend of Bill Clinton, a friend of Donald Trump and the Trump family, a friend of Michael Bloomberg, who now stands charged uh, in in some horrific crimes uh, regarding exploitation of women um, and and seems children, to have exploitation, children. children. Yes, children, thank you. yes. and and seems to have, Despite his status as a registered sex offender, this this seems to have uh, continued uh, his behavior up to recent years, even through this you see the details in the search warrant of uh, of uh, of material that he had collected. I, it strikes me that um, th- this this can't happen without political implications of some sort, even if they are spread throughout different uh, di- different parties. Uh, this is a guy that 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 kept po- politicians very close. Uh, and traveled widely with Bill Clinton um, and, and and attended events and stayed close to, to President Trump. The president's tried to, to suggest that they weren't all that close. Take a, take a listen to what he had to say about it.
2: Well, I knew him like everybody in Palm Beach knew him. I mean, people in Palm Beach knew him. He was a fixture in Palm Beach. Uh, I had a falling out with him a long time ago. I don't think I've spoken to him for 15 years. Uh, I wasn't a fan. I was not, yeah, a long time ago. I'd, I'd say maybe 15 years. Uh, I was not a fan of his. That I can tell you. I was not a fan of his. So uh, I feel very badly actually for Secretary Acosta.
0: And Secretary Acosta, of course, was the U.S. attorney who negotiated the plea deal that's been widely panned because it it let him uh, off the hook for all of this. Only a 13-month sentence uh, with very liberal release policies as part of it. I want to talk about that piece of it in a second, Mary Alice, but the the president is saying he wasn't close to him, but he, he... did He did travel with him quite widely. Uh, according to Epstein, has told people that he's the one that introduced Donald Trump and Melania Trump, although I don't know if there's other evidence of that. Uh, and the president spoke glowingly about him in, in a profile in the early 2000s. And people are wondering whether this
1: is just the worst, most egregious example of rich and powerful men getting treated different in the justice system. People were pretty shocked to realize the ins and outs of his uh, seemingly lenient plea deal. Uh, and whether the fact that he was close to some of these politicians on both sides of the aisle meant that, that prosecutors didn't fight as hard as they should have. That's the conversation that's taking place right now in Florida, in New York, and across the country.
0: And that's what brings it also to Secretary Acosta. He's kept a pretty low profile um, as uh, as Secretary of Labor under uh, under under President Trump, um, and it's not like this wasn't known. He's been asked about this over the years, even in his confirmation mm-hmm. hearings about the deal with Epstein. But uh, as the entirety of the alleged crimes committed by Epstein have come to light, as the women um, now women they were girls at the time, as you mentioned, Mary Alice, have come forward um, through the terrific work of the Miami Herald and other news organizations to. To, to surface these stories, it's put a lot of pressure on Acosta. A lot of calls for him to resign uh, again, as as the architect of a plea deal that um, that that seemed to very much favor a, a man who, uh, according to these allegations, was a was a terrible, terrible sex criminal.
1: And look, I was struck by Secretary Acosta's statements over Twitter in the last few days, pretty unflinchingly stood by his actions and decisions 10 years ago in that controversial plea deal, saying that with the evidence available, they got a deal that was decent. He had to go to jail. He had to register as a sex offender. that he they put the world on notice he was a sexual predator that's from Acosta's tweet and then he went on to say that he thought the crimes were horrific and he's glad that New York prosecutors are moving forward and he's glad that they seem to have new evidence what he didn't do in those tweets was in any way acknowledge the surprise that people are dealing with the surprise and shock when people are learning about the ins and outs of that plea deal or acknowledge how alleged victims might have been hurt by that original plea deal. There was not even a nod to that. So I'm not sure he he helped his case really um, with his pretty bare bones statement.
0: And it is an interesting test case for President Trump. Uh, As you point out in the note this morning, Mary Alice, there's been a lot of churn from that original cabinet. And for all of the ways that this president has um, allowed scandals to to brush off of him, that hasn't always applied to people around him. You have seen this White House, this administration move against people uh, in the cabinet that are embroiled in scandal. Um and, and I wonder how much longer Acosta can hold on in this. There are numerous Democrats calling for his resignation. We haven't seen a break in the dam among Republicans, but they are making noise about having hearings on Capitol Hill about how a deal like this could have been cut. And uh, and, and I, wonder, I wonder whether the pressure builds to a sufficient degree that he becomes the latest casualty in the cabinet wars.
1: Yeah, to your point when the president said that he feels bad for him and he's a good guy and he works really hard, but that the White House was going to have to look into it, look into it very carefully that just felt like a line we've heard before. We felt like when he was talking about looking into Scott Pruitt and Ryan Zinke and these other former members of his cabinet that got swept up in, in controversies, kind of past and present. We've been here before, like you said, just a real revolving door in this president's cabinet.
0: Yeah, and it'd be interesting to see how much they hang on and if the president decides to try to go on offense on this on this issue as well. Uh, it, it, is a, it is a striking one, and I think you're right. A lot of people asking about, whether he's the only powerful uh, man to, to, to escape justice due to uh, political connections. We're going to take a quick break right here. When we come back, we're going to be joined by a man who says he is going to be at the next debate and has got some polls to prove it, the governor of Montana, Steve Bullock. And we're pleased to be joined back here on Powerhouse Politics by the governor of Montana, Steve Bullock, joining us today from Marshalltown, Iowa. Governor, how, how are things in Iowa today?
2: Rick, it's a beautiful day of sunshine in Iowa today, so things are going well.
0: Excellent. Good Good to hear it. I, I want to start with the, the, some news this week. Um, one fewer presidential candidate with Eric Swalwell dropping out, but one more with Tom Steyer, the, the billionaire uh, was very well known for pushing uh, for the impeachment of President Trump in, in some well-funded uh, TV ads. I know you're a big critic of, of dark money. I wonder what your take is on having a self-funding billionaire in, in the race. Do you Do you trust, as Tom Steyer says, that this means he is free of outside influence, or would you have concerns about where a candidate like Tom Steyer derived those billions from?
2: Yeah, and Rick, I mean, from Citizens United, when I was attorney general until today, I mean, I think the fight of my career has been trying to make sure that elections are said by individuals, not wealthy donors and dark money groups, and certainly welcome uh, Tom Steyer to the race. But as he tries to make part of his whole theme about, well, money shouldn't be what decides elections. You know, already that he's putting in $100 million of his own, I think it's, it's at least worth the discussion because, you know, here in Marshalltown, I even just said it to everybody in there, every one of them is more important when it comes to an election than any corporation because they have a vote. And you know, elections ought to be decided by people, not the amount of money spent.
0: Yeah. We, Bernie Sanders responded by, to his entry in the race by saying he's sick and tired of billionaires trying to buy their way into politics. Do you have a similar concern about a self-funder like that? Well, I think,
2: no, you know, he certainly has the right and the ability to uh, do this. But when his, the message is all about um, money and politics, which is part of what he made his launch, well, we've got to make sure that, <laughs> you know, keeping it clean on his own side. But, you know, it's, certainly there are a lot more wealthy people in this field running for office, including, I think, uh, Senator Sanders himself, compared to me.
1: Uh, also in the news this week, Governor, the Obamacare, by the law of the land for 10 years back in the courts, as um, some... Uh, Republican governors fight to have it sort of stricken from the books. You expanded Medicaid uh, in a red state. Talk to us a little bit about this new lawsuit against Obamacare and what it would mean for Montana if all of a sudden uh, the Affordable Care Act was deemed illegal.
2: Well, and that's, no, we expanded Medicaid and um, 100,000 Montanas, 10% of our population actually got health care as a result. When you look at states that didn't expand health care, have a Medicaid, six times greater rural hospital closure than those that did. We went from a 20% unsured rate until 7% today. But even more than that, look, this administration for the last two and a half years has been trying to strip away coverage for people. You know, finally, we're getting to a point where the idea that, you a know, pre-existing condition, you can still get health care or lifetime caps are there. And worked with, as governors, Um, I worked with not just Democrat governors, but Republican governors, too. We had come together over the last couple of years and even testified in D.C. about ways to actually build and stabilize on the Affordable Care Act, not try to rip it apart. As a governor, I see firsthand what happens and what doesn't happen in Washington, D.C. And I think this administration's continuing assault on trying to take health care away from folks it is something that I hope voters urban and rural recognize, because health care time and time again, when I'm traveling around Iowa or anywhere else, access and affordability is so important to folks. And what he's trying to do is destabilize and tear away all the gains that we've made.
1: As you know, people still talk about being frustrated with high prescription prescription drug costs, high deductibles, gaps in insurance. Uh, I know that you're different from some of your other Democratic colleagues in this race. You haven't been for a Medicare for all plan. Um, and, and neither are all of the, those running in the field, obviously. There's sort of a divide there in the party. What would you do if you were elected to work on, on health care in a broader sense?
2: Yeah, and look, we should begin from the premise that it should be accessible to all health care and affordable Um, to all. We are the only, you know, industrialized nation in the world where that isn't necessarily the case. But I think that you can get there by taking some significant steps. One, I'd make it a Medicare for anyone who wants a public option where people can buy in. You know, we pay more for prescription drugs than probably any country in the world. We have nothing to show for it. Having the federal government actually be able to negotiate prescription drug costs, would be significant. You look at 25 million folks don't have health insurance. You could cover about 14 million of them if you just expanded Medicaid all throughout the rest of the country. And getting rid of surprise medical billing and out of network charges, which you could legislate at the federal level. But what I don't want to do is up in the system where 156 to 180 million, depending on who's talking about, employer sponsored health insurance, where generally, there are at times concerns about coverage and cost, but they want to be able to keep that insurance. So let's build on what we have. Let's not just throw it all out and um, disrupt the lives of 160 million folks.
0: You weren't included in the first Democratic debate. Um, I understand you've hit the polling threshold to make it potentially for this second debate. Uh, I, I want I to ask you, there was a moment uh, in the debate where all of the candidates raised their hands saying that they would They would provide health care to undocumented immigrants would you would you do the same guarantee health care to undocumented immigrants no
2: i think we need to do comprehensive immigration reform and we can do comprehensive immigration reform i mean part of the overall a lot of the immigration crisis that we're facing right now is a crisis of this administration making the idea of ripping families apart or getting rid of protections for dreamers, not looking at the path for other undocumented folks in this country. Two thirds of whom who've lived in this country for over a decade. Because eye I travel, like I met a teacher who here in Iowa that about a third of her income goes to her insulin. So she had to take a second job or other folks where healthcare costs are too much. I would work on fixing that and immigration reform rather than just drawing health insurance for everybody that's undocumented in this country.
0: Give us a sense. I mean, now, now that it seems like you'll qualify for the next debate, what are we going to hear from Steve Bullock that was not heard from the 20 Democrats who participated in the last debate? What's the what's the, the issue or the or the thing that you would have said that none of the others did?
2: So so if I tell you everything, I don't. are you still going to listen, Rick, on debate?
0: Oh, <laughs> <nine? laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you, you can preview debate yeah. strategy. But we promise we'll listen.
2: I mean, look, missing from that stage was someone that actually won in a Trump state. And we've got to be able to win back places that we lost, who's been able to get things done in a divided government. My legislature's about 6% Republican, but we've gotten progressive things done. But based on when I'm talking to Democratic voters, I think they're looking for three things. Who can beat Trump? Who understands what their life is like and will fight for them? And who can get something done? We can't have debates that are disconnected from the problems that families face in their everyday lives. So I think you'll hear some of that. You'll also, there were only, you know, and this is where we started this uh, podcast today. was talking about the corrupting influence of money in our system. Billion dollars has been spent since Citizens United in our federal elections and groups that don't disclose where their money's coming from or you look at half of all the outside spending groups in these midterm elections were from groups that don't disclose all their spending for if we're ever going to get anything done in washington dc we got to address the corruption influence and the toxic influence of outside and especially dark money in our system and i think there was less than two minutes spent over two nights even addressing that that's been the fight of my career so i think you'll hear hopefully uh Assuming that I'm giving given sufficient time on that stage, you're going to. Those are some of the things you'll be hearing about.
1: Drilling down on that more, this is a crowded field. You know, I talk to voters who, who have a hard time even making sense of who's in, who's out, and 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 keeping track of everyone's names. What makes you more qualified for this job than anyone else?
2: Yeah, and, and I do think, first of all, you know, and there is tremendous excitement about getting on and making sure Donald Trump's not reelected. But like, let's recognize we're still 210 days out from any voter expression, their preference. But when I look at this field, I'm literally the only one who's won in Trump state in order to win in 2020, we have to win back some places to vote for Trump. No, it's possible. I've done it before. He took Montana by 20 points. I won by four. Being outside of Washington, DC, where often I think success is judged. Like, wasn't that a great speech? where I don't have that luxury. As a governor, I actually have to deliver. And I'm also the only candidate who's passed significant progressive policies through a majority of Republican legislature. And I also think that it's never been more important to take on the course of influence, money, in politics. And I've done more in that than anybody in this field. So I think that there are, in addition to those things, I mean, geographically, we have to be able to represent the whole country uh, generationally I think I have things to add as a governor as an executive I have a lot to add in this field
0: and governor you 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 referenced winning in a in a in a state that Trump carried so easily um, easily a quarter to a third of your voters must have been trump voters um, what yeah, to your mind 30 percent yeah yeah so so to your mind it, it, what has what has president Trump done right there must be something that you can give him credit for or that you feel like your voters would give him credit for uh, beyond what he's done wrong what what has he done right
2: look i think that um i can look at individual agencies like there are things that uh his department of ag has done with forest policy where we worked hand in hand to try to both keep watersheds clear and put you know logs on trucks to force management that has been significant. When I look at where he's uh, what the president might have done right, I mean, the discussion of the challenges that China faces or that we face with China is correct. His prescription is dead wrong. Um, I think, you know, him going in and saying that we'll drain the swamp. Folks want Washington D.C. to work. It's swampier than it's ever been. Him trying to appeal to folks that have looked at in the last 40 years haven't had an actual pay increase um, I think what he was saying when he was running in that respect that everybody ought to have a better shot was correct how it's played out with a trillion dollars of stock buybacks last year that didn't go to any of those folks and things like that hasn't actually played out in practice so I can't see much, I mean I think he's divided our country a lot more I uh, haven't seen that many things actually coming out of this administration that I'd say has been done right at all. And I think in many areas that folks expect the results, he's actually set us back.
1: And how confident are you that you're going to qualify for the next round of debates, both in Detroit or then when the thresholds get even higher in September?
2: Five qualifying polls. Um, so I I'm excited that I have qualified for that second debate. Look forward to being on the stage. As far as the subsequent debates, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we come for it, When we come to it. For now, I'm excited to qualify. I look forward to joining the other candidates on the stage. And I also think, though, that that's the you know the practice has always been on both sides. And it's not the, the debates that decide these elections. It's actually The early states like where I am today in Iowa winnow down a large field and a lot smaller. And I'll be focused on both, hopefully qualifying for the debates, but also really building out both the network and the connections and getting people to know me in, first of all, these early states and expanding beyond that. This is a marathon, not a sprint to the August debate line, I guess.
0: And, and you came out with a $2 million fundraising quarter. H- how many individual donations are you able to boast of right now? Are you north of 65,000 and close to that that the magic number of 130,000 for the next round?
2: You know, I yeah, and I haven't hit, I don't know the exact number. I don't think I've hit the 65,000 number. I think that when all of your listeners go on to SteveBullock.com, we'll have that easily. But it really is, you know, the from my perspective, that it's not about, how many individual donors can you get? Because you got folks paying 30 bucks to digital firms to get the $1 donor. It shouldn't be, again, about the donors. It should be about making the connection with the voters and building out the field staff.
0: And we you know you'll be hard at work on that in Iowa and beyond. Governor Steve Bullock from Montana, thank you for being here. Really appreciate it.
2: I appreciate both Bullock, You having me, for sure.
0: Thanks. So, Mary Alice, uh, he'll be an intriguing addition to the field. You heard him break there with uh, some of his rivals on uh, on a big issue around on, around health care for undocumented immigrants. Uh, different perspective, more moderate. I know he doesn't like the labels, but a more moderate perspective than you may hear from from some others. And critically, someone that did win in the red state.
1: And I do think that governors bring a different perspective as executives. They talk about these issues because they've had to implement around them. And I think that voters often really respond well to that. So if, if he gets to make his pitch on a large stage, maybe he'll get some looks.
0: Now we know with Tom Steyer's entry, uh, the, the field is still shifting, still changing. Uh, and uh, and with Eric Swalwell out, uh, we're starting to see some churn in the race. And maybe Bullock gets another Another look inside that, uh, that context. That does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. Uh, our thanks to our whole team, Trevor Hastings, the man behind the controls, Angie Yak, and Avery Miller. Thanks to Mary Alice. And we will see you back next week with another edition of Powerhouse Politics.